0: Hi there, my name's Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. The preached texts are included in the audio of this episode, but you can still find a link to them in the episode description. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the first Letter to the Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation— for God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Here ends our first reading. Our second reading this morning comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter, where Jesus continues. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then the master went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground "'Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, "'reaping where you did not sow "'and gathering where you did not scatter seed. "'So I was afraid, "'and I went and hid your talent in the ground. "'Here, you have what is yours.' "'But his master replied, "'You wicked and lazy slave. "'You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow "'and gather where I did not scatter? "'Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, "'and on my return I would have received "'what was my own with interest.' So take the talent from him, and give it to the one with the ten talents, for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have in abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Now, these are some difficult texts, so it'll be important to situate ourselves in the scriptures and in the church year. We're nearing the end, after all, the end of the church year, and therefore focusing on the end, on Jesus' return. The theme throughout this few weeks here is um, things like judgment eternity. Questions about how should we behave while we wait for Jesus to return. And then the texts that answer that question tend to be packed almost wall-to-wall with law, calling us out on where we fall short. But if we're careful to look, we'll find gospel too. In the scriptures, we're in two series the first is in first thessalonians this is paul writing to the church in thessalonica probably the oldest book in the new testament and those christians are faced for the first time with this problem what happens to people who die before jesus returns well paul assures them they'll of course still be together but then has to quickly go to exhort them right to correct them in their behavior because just because you might die before Jesus returns, you still need to live as though he could return any moment. So with that, no surprise, he echoes the same sort of things Jesus had said. Jesus will come like a thief in the night, so you need to stay awake. If you knew a thief was coming, you wouldn't go to sleep. And do not behave as those who are living in darkness. You know, you sleep in darkness. I mean, that's the thing with these metaphors. They're kind of complicated, and they... Connect in different ways, like sleep can mean literal sleep, but it can also mean death and Paul uses it both ways. Day and night are dual metaphors that collect all sorts of opposites. During the day, you're uh, orderly and productive and well-behaved. At night, you're chaotic and unproductive and debaucherous, unsafe even. So, from these huge, expansive ideas that interconnect with sleep and life and death, Paul unpacks a pretty simple rule of thumb. Name the behavior. If it's the kind of thing you would do at night and not during the day, then don't do it. Because then it gets paired with sleeping and therefore not being ready. But if it's the kind of behavior you would do during the day but not at night, therefore like the kind of thing you would do waiting up for that thief, go ahead and do it. We should clarify at this point, Paul's not anti-alcohol. Virtually everyone in his time and place drank wine. It was in religious ceremonies, Jewish and Christian alike. And yet then, as it is now, Paul acknowledges for them, reminds them that there's a difference between the way you might drink wine during the day, with communion, a glass of wine with a meal, versus, you know, at night. Becoming so drunk that you're not safe, or orderly, or productive anymore. You're like those who are already asleep. So this darkness, with its big, big collective metaphor here, captures so much. From literal sleep to death, drunkenness, unproductivity, chaos, and all the rest. The other place we need to situate ourselves in the texts is in Matthew, because we're in a series here as well, a series of parables from Jesus about the coming judgment day, about Jesus's return. And while each of these parables is distinct, they are connected by similar themes and placed together, so we read them in light of each other. Those themes include, there's people who should know better, but don't behave well. And then comes a time where it's too late. They can no longer correct their bad behavior. And because of that, even though these parables sound like there are judgment for the whole world, that's the third theme, the judgment comes. Some are punished, some are rewarded. Because some of them knew better, there's kind of this implication that Jesus is particularly eyeing the church because Christians, let's say, let's just call it X, Y, and Z because Christians know they ought to do X, Y, and Z. When the time comes, if they haven't done that, they are most ready to be judged. So Jesus lays out some three, four, three, four parables here. We get three uh, uh, on Sunday about the harshness of this coming judgment. And yet here, post-resurrection, we're looking back knowing that we're not saved by what we do. We're justified by grace through faith on account of Christ. So, if we know that we're not saved by what we do, what do we do with parables that tell us we better do something? (laughs) Well, let's jump into this one. Today, we've got the three slaves, the three workers, left behind uh, when their master goes away. He leaves them in charge of a whole heap of money. And while we, of course, will need to consider what the parable is saying, we're also going to consider what it's not saying. And today, I'd like to use it as uh, two different jumping-off points for what the lessons might be here. Before we get to those two ill-conceived interpretations, let's consider what we should fairly well agree upon. Uh, You know, like the basics of the parable. The master is jesus the time spent away is now it's the era after jesus is gone and before jesus returns the people who have something to work with in the meantime must therefore well again it's like in connecting the whole chapter here matthew 25 it could be the whole world but we know for sure it definitely includes us the church we know what we're supposed to do and we have the resources to do it. And then when the master returns, that's judgment day. Some are rewarded, some not so much. (laughs) Some are cast into darkness. And what that means might depend on whether we think Jesus is talking about the whole world or the church or kind of both. Okay, so if that much is clear, how do we get tripped up? Well, the first way, I just want to acknowledge it because you might hear about it a little bit Uh, it's not a particularly popular way to read this this parable, but a famous American preacher did a few years ago. She she preached it as though it were a critique of the way economics sometimes unjustly moves wealth about. And, And to be fair, this parable does do a pretty good job of describing that reality. The master controls the resources, and therefore when the workers do the work, the master gets the gains. You also have this thing about interest, and as we know, interest is paid by those who depend on loans, and interest is gained. The people who get that interest are the ones who already had resources. And then Jesus' last line kind of sounds like, if it were about economics, like a pretty harsh way to describe it, those who have much will receive more, and those who have little will have it taken away. But this reading that makes the parable less about Jesus returning and judging and more about money, well, there's, it makes a few fundamental mistakes. And you're going to kind of have to just take my word for it on the first one. And that's that even though this parable talks an awful lot about money, talents is a unit of currency, it's not literally about money. It's a, a stand-in. And we know this because it's the kind of wealth that a slave could not possibly acquire in their lifetime, even in several lifetimes. this is, It's kind of like a few weeks... Has it been a month or two already? When we had the parable about the debts, right? The debt was so big, the slave could never, ever repay it in their entire life. We're wise to read it uh, when we hear about such large sums of money, bigger than they could gain or repay during a lifetime, that this is more about what they do have access to during their life. It's the classic three, the time, talent, and treasures. It's the entirety of the force, the influence they have in the world to change things for better or for worse. I said you have to take my word for it, then I gave the, gave the explanation anyway. Point being, this reading that makes it just about economics misses the fact that the, uh, the money piece is a stand-in for so much more than literal money. Secondly, this interpretation, as though it were a critique on economics, makes the master out to be the bad guy. When I thought we agreed, it seemed pretty obvious that the master is supposed to be Jesus. So even if a parable like this were out there somewhere and it was used to talk about the evils of usury, charging interest, it's probably worth noting the early church was opposed to usury. It, it, was, it, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that the church started charging interest because they thought that was wrong. This parable is found sandwiched by parables that are so clearly about the end times and Jesus' return that it implies this one must be too but let's consider it a little bit more anyway. Because the third worker is inclined to agree, right? He says the master reaps what he didn't sow. That sure sounds like an earthly master with some unjust dynamics there who profits from the hard work of others. He also, the worker calls the master harsh and angry. and That seems to fit. The master out of anger handles the worker harshly. It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. And then the consequence is darkness. Now, maybe that's hell, but maybe it's the collective metaphor that includes the bad side of every two-part pairing that we can think of. Maybe he's still the master's servant. He's just that much worse off than he would have been had he behaved as he should have. But he didn't do that. Again, you might want to know why, but all we have is this explanation that he gave, That it's probably out of fear, but maybe there's an element of disgust. Maybe he despises his master. Maybe he doesn't think it's fair. That's the long and short of this reading, which emphasizes the third worker's opinion of the master. To be clear, it's not that he's right. It's not that this is an indictment of the way the economy worked in that day. It's an indictment on the worker's opinion of the master. As a stand in for God, the moral of the story quickly becomes clear then. Living in fear of God led this person to behave inappropriately. Instead of trusting God to provide, he buried his wealth as to conserve it. Instead of looking forward to Jesus' return as a joyous time, he was frozen by fear. It's ironic. But that's why these parables don't stand on their own, but in the context of the entire gospel, in this case, the entire chapter is enough. A parable about the possible harsh judgment at Jesus' return concludes with an unexpected twist. Do not live as though the master will be harsh with you. Be bold, be reckless in giving of yourself. Love God and neighbor so much it may just hurt. Because the alternative wasn't good. He lived as though the master would be harsh, and the master was harsh with him. He lived as though his destination was darkness, and he got darkness. It's anticipating the darkness, anticipating the harsh master that led to that consequence, which again, often is interpreted as hell, but we may interpret it as the negative side of the possibilities that were presented before him. Okay, today, uh, let's also look at a second one, and this, Second, ill-conceived reading is quite a bit more popular. In fact, I bet you've heard it. (laughs) I probably have even preached it. It comes up in Sunday school. It comes up in children's sermons because, well, children can relate to this pretty readily. When you're young, pocket change feels like a whole lot of money. Enough quarters to get a snack and a soda at the corner store is enough to feel wealthy because compared to what you usually have, that's quite a bit. And at the same time, the same kids can recognize that a few coins, well, they aren't all that much because you still can't buy most things. Now, that's how this parable is often presented, as though the three workers were like those children that we know, that they were all given a lot compared to what they normally have, but ultimately maybe not all that much. And that allows us to consider then that the third one must not have had much at all, right? It's just one measly little talent. If that's the case, so the all-too-common children's sermon goes, then even you, no matter how small you feel, how little you seem to have, and how few your talents, in this case literal talents, appear to be, you too can go out and do big things. Moreover, you have a responsibility to try So again, there's some law there and some gospel. Not a bad lesson. Even if we took a wrong turn to get there, it's still a good lesson. That's still the truth. But one talent is not a little. It's still an awful lot. Just not as much as the other two got. The varying amounts probably do imply the amount you're given isn't an excuse to do nothing, but we shouldn't minimize what he was given. And we shouldn't minimize what we are given either. Even one talent is more than he could have saved up, at least saved up on the side in his entire life. Because again, it's probably not just talking about money. Jesus is also talking about the time they spent on this. Jesus is also talking about their wits. It says they were given according to their abilities. Jesus is also including the sort of things the workers would have, should have, could have done, and yet in this case did not. And for that, he's cast out into darkness. Let's end then where we began. What happens to this poor fellow? We certainly do not want to say that Jesus is contradicting himself here. We don't want to say that it's somehow contrary to what we know from this vantage point, that the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing after the resurrection, we know we are saved by grace through faith on account of Christ, not by what we do. Yet these three workers seem to get their reward for the next age based on what They did. Now, it's good news, of course, that even these lowly slaves, because they were responsible with what they were given, were given even more. That much is clear. But what if the good news is also that even though the third one was so irresponsible as to be cast into darkness, he's still the master's servant. There's a tension here that we certainly won't resolve today. I mean, it's hard enough to tease out. I've been alluding to it on and off throughout this, that God is both merciful and just, which faces us with this question. What does it look like to judge by grace and at the same time be fair? Well, it may look just like this. Perhaps when the day comes, when the next age is upon us, the reward for each of the master's servants isn't identical. Maybe it's not all the same. Perhaps, as we know well, in this life, you can be forgiven and your actions still have consequences. Well, perhaps our actions have consequences, even if forgiven by God. After all, this third one chose to behave as though he were asleep, even though he was awake. He chose to be unproductive. The consequences were exactly what he expected. He made nothing, he was dealt with harshly, and found himself in darkness. And again, as Paul teased it out, darkness and lack of productivity and chaos and drunkenness and death are all intertwined in a sense. So, to go along with our three workers, we've found three lessons here though we don't necessarily have to parse them out. If I put them back to back, they sure sound like they go together. Do not live in fear of God, regarding God as a harsh judge. Live knowing God is gracious and merciful. Do not think of yourself as small or incapable. At every stage in life, you have the potential to do a lot of good, and our actions matter. We can fully affirm and proclaim that we are saved by grace through faith on account of Christ and at the same time acknowledge that our actions have an impact. They have consequences. There's still value in trying, to, trying our hardest and doing our best even though that's not to be saved. Good can still come of that good deed. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other and have a great rest of the week.